A few years ago, a spacecraft sent back pictures and other data from Pluto. Did the data support the belief that Pluto evolved over millions of years, or was it created recently? Pluto, another young planet, this week on Creation Magazine Live. The audio podcast that you're about to hear features scientific evidence for biblical creation. For many more evidences for the accuracy of the Bible, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Richard Fangrad. And I'm Thomas Bailey. Now, this week on Creation Magazine Live, we're going to have a look at Pluto, the planet Pluto, or former planet Pluto. In July of 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft made a phenomenally successful flyby of Pluto and its moons, and scientists were able to compare their theories uh, about Pluto with actual data from the spacecraft. That's right. We'll focus on that in a few minutes. But let's begin with a bit of background on Pluto. Yeah. Pluto orbits 40 times further out from the Sun than Earth, and for over 70 years it was regarded as the ninth planet of our solar system. Clyde Tombaugh, pictured here at the door of the Pluto Discovery Telescope, the Lowell Observatory in Arizona, discovered Pluto in 1930 by comparing photographs of stars taken two weeks apart. Now before that, Percival Lowell, the founder of, of that observatory, believed in the existence of a ninth planet because of perceived irregularities in the motions of Uranus. Now, he dubbed it Planet X and calculated that it would be six times more massive than Earth. He even specified its location. Uh, Lowell searched for the planet without success from 1906 until 1916 when he died. Tombaugh was hired by the observatory in 1929 and discovered the planet near where Lowell suggested. This apparently vindicated Lowell's predictions, so the discovery was appropriately announced on Lowell's birthday, the 13th of March. Okay. And the first two letters of Pluto's name are his initials. There we go. A Pluto is so faint that it can only be seen with a telescope uh, with, a, with a diameter of 30 centimeters or larger, and astronomers back then were unable to determine its size and mass. Early estimates could only rely on the deviations of the orbits of Neptune and Uranus, but even with these measurements, the size was quickly revised down from Lowell's estimate, and eventually astronomers settled on a mass of about three-quarters that of Earth. That's right. All of this changed around 1978, nearly 50 years after Pluto's initial discovery. The key evidence was found by James Christie of the U.S. Naval Observatory when he realized that Pluto has a moon. He noticed that some of the images from their 1.5-meter telescope showed Pluto to be slightly elongated, but the stars in the same photographs were not. From those images, he was able to estimate the diameter of the moon's orbit and its orbital period. As a result, astronomers could calculate the mass of Pluto with far more certainty. It's now accepted that Pluto is only 1 500th of the mass of the Earth. Whoa, okay. Further observations confirm Pluto's moon, and the, the International Astronomical Union gave it official status in 1985 and named it Charon. Now, right off the bat, we can learn some lessons from Pluto. With such a tiny mass, Pluto could not possibly have affected the orbits of the gas giants of Uranus and Neptune. Right. So, what's going on? Uh, it, it, is there some other reason for the, for the orbits being affected? In 1983, astronomers searched the entire sky using the infrared astronomical satellite, but no hidden planet was found. Okay. It's now generally believed that the perceived irregularities to the orbits of Uranus and Neptune were imaginary. Wow. That Lowell's calculations were wrong, 
and Tombaugh's discovery was a coincidence. Amazing. The question is, how could so many scientists be wrong for so long about the mass of Pluto by a factor of 400? Uh, a similar question is often asked of biblical creationists when we speak of the Earth being around 6,000 years old instead of the generally accepted much older age of 4.6 billion years. That's right. The mass of Pluto, like the age of the Earth, hasn't been measured directly. It's calculated from scientific models that are all based on assumptions. Yeah. All the scientists got the same wrong answers because they all use the same models and the same assumptions. Right. However, ongoing observations of the behavior of Pluto led to more information that enabled an entirely different approach to the problem, overturning the previous assumptions and coming up with a radically new and soundly based estimate. Okay, now there's, there's another big difference. The mass of Pluto is operational science where we can continue to make observations in the present using newer and better instruments and technology, but the age of the Earth is a historical matter. We can't travel back in time to make observations of things that happened in the past. For information about the past, we need reliable reports from eyewitnesses. That's right. And that's exactly what the Bible is. Yes. It's a reliable report written by men who were guided by God so that they wrote an error-free account of history. Yep. And by basing our scientific models on that history, our hypotheses about how the universe might operate are usually much closer to the observations right. once they come in. We're talking about a recent flyby, back in 2015, of Pluto. We can compare what scientists predicted with what they actually found. That's right. By the way, it took a lot of intelligent design to outfit the New Horizon spacecraft, yeah. fly it for nine and a half years, and operate it with just one shot at success. Right, yeah. Uh, to reach such a distant object, the New, New Horizons spacecraft was launched from the Earth at a greater speed than any spacecraft to ever leave Earth's orbit. The spacecraft traveled at a speed of 15 kilometers per second on its way to Pluto. And, and that's why it was only able to make one pass. Uh, it just wasn't possible to include enough, include enough fuel in such a spacecraft to slow it down enough to orbit the planet or to, or to make more than one pass. Right. The New Horizons spacecraft is about the size of a grand piano and is packed with a variety of scientific instruments. There's an ultraviolet imaging spectrometer for gas measurements, a special multispectral imaging system for various mapping operations, an infrared spectrometer, a radiometer for gas measurements, a solar wind detector, a particle spectrometer, a dust collector, and a very high-resolution CCD imager with a telephoto lens for taking high-quality photo. All right, everything yeah. but the kitchen sink there. Um, so what did they expect to find? Uh, and, and, and why were they so surprised with the real Pluto and its large moon Charon and the subsequently discovered small moons of Nix, Styx, Hydra, and Kerberos? Uh, we can measure the surprise effect by comparing, uh, comparing it to writings uh, from the 1990s, for example. Uh, the last great textbook on planetary science, The New Solar System, authored by leading planetologists, had a chapter on Triton, Pluto, and Charon. It's uh, by Dale Cruikshank. Triton, that's the large moon of, uh, of Neptune, had been visited in 1989 by Voyager 2, and scientists had reason to suspect that Pluto might share some of its characteristics since both of them were classified as Kuiper Belt objects. But Triton had shocked scientists with its evidence of recent activity and water volcanism. Yeah. To account for the activity, they invoked a potential heat source, tidal pulls from Neptune over millions of years. 
at Pluto, except for small interactions with Charon, no such heat source exists. No. Uh, in 1998, uh, scientists knew of light and dark regions on Pluto from the, from the Hubble telescope, and they detected that it had an atmosphere around Pluto containing nitrogen, methane, carbon dioxide, and some hydrocarbons. They knew about Charon, but were surprised that its surface was quite different than Pluto's, composed mostly of water ice. Really? Knowing that Pluto had passed its closest point to the sun in 1990 and was moving away from the sun, Cruikshank speculated that the atmosphere might collapse within a couple of decades, saying, maybe the entire planet will turn uniformly white as the entire already pitifully thin atmosphere collapses in a global freeze-out. Seventeen years into that prediction, the atmosphere remains surprisingly dynamic. Yeah, still here. Um, how did Pluto form? Crickshank cited uh, opinions of theorists who later became lead scientists for the New Horizons spacecraft. Here's, here's the most likely scenario. Alan Stern, William McKinnon, Jonathan Lenin have proposed that Pluto formed in a near-circular, low-inclination, heliocentric orbit, probably beyond Neptune's position. A great many other icy planetesimals also accreted in the solar nebula beyond Neptune, becoming the original population of the Kuiper Belt. The gravity of Neptune perturbed these bodies as they accumulated, resulting in frequent collisions among them. Eventually, Pluto managed to garner considerable mass. Later, the powerful impact of a fairly large planetesimal with Pluto resulted in the formation of Charon. This hypothetical impact may also explain why Pluto's rotational axis is tipped so extremely. Wow. There you have it. Now, thanks to New Horizons, we can see the real Pluto system. Yeah. And we can hear the reactions of these same scientists at their after their long wait for the observations. Who would have expected this kind of a complexity, said principal scientist Alan Stern after the first images came in. Pluto's surface is, quote, Every bit as complex as that of Mars, one said. Some commented on uh, how Earth-like some f surface features appeared to be, and one thing stands out to everyone, Pluto looks young. Yeah. Uh, National Geographic reported that the surface images stunned scientists with evidence of glaciers and geysers and, and, and mountains of ice 11,000 feet high, rivaling the Rockies. Uh, the landscape, quote, looks relatively young, so young, in fact, that it suggests the planet is still geologically active. That's a surprise. Pluto has large areas with no craters, implying recent resurfacing in those areas. Uh, the geologist for the New Horizons spacecraft, he said, the discovery of vast, craterless, very young planes on Pluto exceeds all pre-flyby expectations. Wow. According to the secular scientists, Pluto has been bombarded by other objects in the Kuiper Belt for billions of years. Right. The, quote, most stunning thing about this initial image of Pluto's southeast quadrant is that not a single impact crater was found. Yeah. This means this is a very young surface, team member John Spencer said. How young? He guessed it is, quote, less than 100 million years old, which is a small fraction of the four and a half billion year age of the solar system. Yeah. No kidding. That's only 145th of that time span. Actually, it might be active right now, he added, 
with no craters, you just can't put a lower limit on how active it might be. Amazing. Yeah, some big surprises for the evolutionary notions of Pluto. But they actually do fit biblical predictions. That's nice. And that's really the point of this episode today. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, you might be wondering how today's discussion impacts your Christian life. I mean, what, what does Pluto have to do with you? Ultimately, ultimately, it has to do with the authority and accuracy of the Bible. All our information about how to be saved, for example, and, and what God has done to save sinners comes from the Bible. So Christians need to be very sure that it really is accurate. That's right. Even if Christians have never thought about the Bible that way, all of us Christians need to be sure that at least those parts of the Bible that record the details of Jesus' death and resurrection are recorded accurately. Right. Yeah, those parts at least. Um, our, our salvation depends on, on those parts. Uh, in Romans 5.17, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Like We need to be very, very sure that that part is accurate, right? But the Bible records more than just the details about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There's more there. That's right. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, the whole Bible, is God's Word. And if it really is the Word of the one who knows everything about everything, then then all of it is accurate, including the history it records from the beginning of creation. Yeah, since that's the case, Bible-believing scientists can and, and are using it instead of the millions of years evolutionary history to build scientific models about the origin of the solar system. Those models make various predictions about what will be found when the data comes in. Today we're looking at some of the data that came in about Pluto, and the data fits the biblically-based models much better than it does the evolutionary models. Yes. So what's the point? The point is that the data provides support for the accuracy of the Bible, and that should be very encouraging to all Christians. Right. It's a clue that we haven't been taken in by some cult or been been duped into believing something that isn't true. Uh, Like the Apostle Peter wrote, we didn't follow cleverly devised fables when we told you about the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of those things, Peter says, that we reported. These things are true, is what he's saying. Okay, so let's get back to Pluto. It's not just surface features that indicate Pluto is young. The atmosphere is also young. Okay. Scientists measured the uh, escape rate of nitrogen at 500 tons per hour. That's 500 times the rate at Mars. All of Pluto's nitrogen should have been depleted eons ago. This is such a problem that scientists who continue to believe Pluto is about 4.5 billion years old propose that comets resupplied the nitrogen, but all the proposed sources put together appear inadequate. All right. Sharon is young, too. It shows signs of resurfacing and includes canyons 5 to 10 kilometers, like 3 to 6 miles deep. Uh, How could this small body, about half the diameter of Pluto, be active? Uh, Eric Hand wrote in Science Magazine, This was unexpected because many thought that the internal heat sources within Pluto and Sharon left over from their formation in a giant impact billions of years ago, would have dissipated long ago. Deputy Project Scientist Kathy Olkin uh, said at a press conference, Originally, I thought Sharon might be an ancient terrain covered in craters. Many on the team thought that might be the case. They were wrong. 
So dropping the assumption of billions of years resolves these problems. Christians should be pleased but not surprised to see young surfaces on the planet. The New Horizons data provides evidence that the solar system cannot be billions of years old. It's consistent with the Bible's time frame of thousands of years. Pluto, another young planet, even though we know it's been demoted as a planet. And, and, uh, but we could actually do a show like this on each of the planets pointing out features that don't fit with evolution in millions of years, but support biblical history. That's right. There were other surprises for evolutionists that came from Pluto's moons. Most inner moons in the solar system keep one face pointed toward their central planet. Yeah. This is claimed to have resulted from a gravitational tidal locking effect that is evidence for the very old age of the solar system, allegedly about 5 billion years. Right, and due to the fact that the moons are not point objects, but they have a heavier and lighter area throughout them, gravitational theory tells us that tidal friction causes the moons to eventually tidally lock to their respective planets after a very long period of time, leaving one face of the moon always pointed to their parent planet, as you just described. Now, from Earth, we only ever see one side of our own moon. Uh, so the moons rotate on their axis once per revolution around their parent planet. That's basically what that means. Yep. But this animation from NASA shows that this certainly isn't the case with the small moons of Pluto. No. Instead, they behave like spinning tops. In the animation, you can see Pluto is best shown at center with its moons Charon, Styx, Nix, Kerberos, and Hydra. New analysis has found that the four smaller moons, Styx, Nix, Kerberos, and Hydra, rotate very fast. Yeah, Kerberos spins the slowest once every 5.33 hours, whereas Hydra is, is the whirling dervish of a planet <laughs> that's out there rotating once every 26 minutes. Planetary scientist Mark Showalter of NASA's New Horizons mission said this, these Pluto moons are essentially spinning tops and that radically changes the way we understand the dynamics of how they operate. This is unlike anything we've seen elsewhere in the solar system. No one has ever seen a moon like Hydra that rotates 89 times during a single orbit. <laughs> in addition, towards the end of the video, one moon is illustrated with its spin axis precessing or rotating just like a spinning top. This usually indicates a recent disturbance. Could it mean a recent creation? Hey, maybe. <laughs> and where does this leave uniformitarian theory for the, for the formation of the solar system? It's in big trouble, right? But don't worry, this isn't the first time that evolutionary expectations aren't supported by the, uh, when, the, when the data comes in, by the data. They'll come up with some hypothesis to try to make the data fit with the billions of years timescale. That's right. Also notice in the NASA animation that Nix rotates backwards, similar to the way the planet Venus orbits the sun. Nix is shown going clockwise, while the others all go counterclockwise. Yeah. And that's not all. Nix is also on its side, similar to the planet Uranus, which has about a 98 degrees tilt to the plane of the solar system. These are anomalies that run contrary to the uh, uniformitarian principle that the solar system formed out of a nebula cloud of gas and dust. Right. In that scenario, all angular momentum is directed in the same plane. So how can individual planets and moons spin backwards? Right, yeah. The Earth's moon was created in a near-perfect circular orbit and tidally locked. Why? For purposes of stability to the Earth's tides and other designed-for-life features here on Earth. Likewise, planets with tidally locked moons were created that way. 
as well as the, the retrograde motion of Venus's spin, for example, naturalistic theories, methods, fail on, on all counts to account for these kinds of features. In the case of Pluto, the moons may be smaller Kuiper Belt objects that have been captured. Pluto itself may be such, since it has a highly eccentric orbit, even yeah. out of the plane of the rest of the planets. And the high spin rates of its moons testify at least that such an event did not occur billions of years ago, or else they would be tidally locked today. That's right. A created solar system, which is only 6,000 years old or so, is consistent with these observations. And it's also consistent with tidally locked moons and the varying rotation directions of some objects in the solar system. A recent creation is a far simpler explanation for the formation of the system. That's right. This whole event of the New Horizons flyby of Pluto is typical of what happens when spacecraft send data back from planets. Yep. So many times the reaction from evolutionists is, wow, we weren't expecting that. <laughs> it's so much more fulfilling if you just start with Scripture. Yeah. The hypotheses tend to match the observations much more closely. That's right. Yeah. Now, much of the content for this week's show came from articles from Creation Magazine and the Journal of Creation. If you want more details than, than we've been able to cover here today, you can find those articles on creation.com. Just do a search on Pluto uh, in the search window. People often send in questions that one of the CMI staff answers. We titled this one, How Does God Relate to Time? Yeah, hold on to your hats. <laughs> Part of the email reads, you said in one of your articles that any angel that does something in a sequence has created a sort of time as an, as an idea of sequential events. I was thinking that this must relate to God in the fact that he did create the universe and he existed before the universe. He obviously does not transcend sequence in eternity. Also, there was no information other than God before he started creating. So how did he think? He also would have had at one point to start thinking, obviously, because each thought is sequential. In episode three of this season, we talked about the question, if God created the universe, then who created God? And this is a related topic. Sean Doyle responded, but there are different ways of construing God's eternity available to the Christian because the Bible doesn't fully explain the nature of God's relation to time. One is called omnitemporality, which means that God has existed for an infinite duration of objectively temporal moments. This idea has become somewhat fashionable among some modern Christian philosophers. However, I see a deep incoherence in the idea. It seems impossible to count sequentially from negative infinity to zero, much less negative infinity to infinity. This means there can't be an, inf an infinite series of moments. Even God's omnipotence is irrelevant here because not even omnipotence can do the logically impossible, such as make two plus two equals five or make a married bachelor. Okay, and it gets even better. Another way of thinking about God's eternity is to say that he is essentially timeless. The common statement, God is outside of time, reflects this general view of God's eternity. This means that God is completely static. Even his thinking does not change at all. This has been the traditional view of the church ever since at least the 4th and 5th centuries, largely due to the church father Augustine. However, this view of God is hard to reconcile with the dynamic relational depiction of God in the Bible, and especially Christ's incarnation. It also means that God is not really related to his creation in an objective temporal sense. The only way he is said to change and relate with respect to creation is as other beings around him have a subjective experience of change. This is like how a father might appear to his son to get shorter through the years 
when in fact the father's height has remained constant. The change in the father is merely apparent and subjective. It's not objectively real. Wow. Now, we, we don't expect all of you to follow along with that, but notice how Sean was outlining different possible answers, different concepts, yet they were all scripturally based. If you're into thinking about these kinds of concepts, there are articles on the website that do that. But uh, we're going to end here, and we'll see you next week. Today's episode was originally formatted for broadcast TV and is available online at the links in the podcast show notes. Both are produced by Creation Ministries International, publishers of Creation Magazine. For more information for the accuracy of the Bible, visit creation.com. You can also donate to the ministry at creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening. 